How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 242. I'm not 242 years old, Zeke. No, you're not. But you've got 200 plus the meaning of life. Oh, I do. Which is 42. That is, that is an old age. And uh, I will finish that quote next week because the rest of the quote actually contains another number. That'll be relevant to... Oh. Yeah, thank you, Dustin Hoffman from Mr. Megorian's Wonder Emporium, <laughs> which I haven't seen. How are you, But Jake? Walter White has two copies of in his cabin. I'm good, Zeke. Yeah? It's Man, it's been a crazy week. It's been a busy week. Busy week. What did we do last week? We did the French Connection. It was two weeks ago. Asteroid City last we week. We did Asteroid City last week. That's right. We did. That, I think because I watched that like the Tuesday prior. So it's yeah. been two weeks since I actually saw the film we covered last week. That's very fair. That's very fair. But there, there's been a lot going on. Hmm. A lot going on in our home city of Perth, Western Australia. Much like the film setting uh... of the week. Um, Jake, my fun f- trivia fact from the film of the week, Ben Young's yes. uh, Hounds of Love. As I just said... Set in Western Australia. But the most important aspects of this is obviously this film is, you know, it's a psychological thriller centered around two serial killers trapping a young lady and her... I thought it was a comedy about two serial killers trapping a young lady. Yeah, it's most definitely not. Oh, okay. um, Fair enough. As we did. uh, But what's really interesting is, of course, um, this is based around the West Australian serial killers. Yes. David and Catherine Burney, the Burney killers, Mm. who weren't based in Coobalup, as the film is actually based in. They were based in Willoughby, which is... Oh, which is a a lot closer. (laughs) Well, I mean, to be honest, we're currently sitting... uh, We both live in the the Cardinia suburb, which is the suburb that is... Next to both of them. It's in the middle between both. Cool Bluffs on one side, Willoughby's on the other. I went to Willoughby um, to get a nasal spray for myself just a few weeks ago. And, um, well, there's some fun... There's a, <laughs> That's there my are, fun fact. Well, hey, look, <laughs> you know, there's a couple of little extra side facts. Okay. I, obviously, a, a long time ago, attended high school, which I had to walk through Willoughby every day. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, my mum lived on the same street as the Burnies oh. when the Burnies were there. So that's not terrifying at all. Um, and at the time was a young single woman, not teenage young, but in well, well, mid, I, early mid, I want to say late twenties, late twenties, well, early thirties. So. Well, I, I did a little reading up on the real life, um, kill. Oh, they are killers. They're serial killers. Yeah. And I know at least one of the victims was over 30 years old. So her age might've not mattered in that scenario, there which is, a, I, I don't want to scare the crap out of you even more, but. But that's funny. I it's knew that fact. That I knew that fact long before this film existed. Right. I remember my mum driving us around to all the houses she had yep. been at, and a lot of them don't exist anymore. But an additional additional fact oh, is this film. Uh, well, this house up until twenty twenty one at least did exist. This mm. house did not get demolished. In fact, uh, the house of David and Catherine Burney sold. For four hundred and twenty-five thousand in twenty twenty-one, so should have sold for like ten dollars. What's going show. on? <laughs> I know, right? Wait, what? That's no. That's baffling. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just watched this film and like, I mean, I, I've uh, we'll get into it. We, we've both seen it a few times now. Yes, but like, I just rewatched it, and you, you're telling me that. 
Yeah. What the? You want to see what? inside it? I'm, you, I'm showing I, Jake a picture. Oh, there it is. Oh, wow, that's quite nice, actually. <laughs> they've done the furniture. Jake, people died. <laughs> they've. It looks really not. Nu- it looks very modern. Yeah, but that's the outside. So that still looks. Oh, okay. A little, yeah, that still a looks, little serious. That still looks pretty bad. <laughs> I don't understand. That's impressive. Four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, and and these guys did kill what two people, four people. Was it? I think it was either three or four. Yeah. And of course, their final victim got, got away. Who, of course, is the subject of this film. The fictional character of Vicky, but maybe not so fictional. My fun trivia fact, Zeke. I'm, I'm going to kind of do a similar thing to you, and I'm going to sort of relate it to our real life circumstances because you're right. The, the context of this film is literally so close to us. Yeah, less than ten minutes. We are less than ten minutes away from. And yeah, and you sometimes walk to your house from mine. You. Yeah. How, how, <laughs> but hey, they're gone. They're gone at least, which is good. Um, mine is that, and this is a bit of an odd one. I actually auditioned, well, auditioned. I I applied to become an extra for this film back in 2016, January 2016, which is interesting because I found the old email I sent. Now I didn't get a response or anything like that. I was obviously not in the running. I'm probably not who they were looking for necessarily. Although they're probably looking for school students. And I was 18. So but it's not all the male bit. school students. She goes to an all-girls school. That's true. That's true. So that's probably legitimately what it was. I'm, I wouldn't have applied if it said, like, only women, but mm-hmm. maybe I did. Who knows? <laughs> I was like, surely <laughs> I'll be the only one. Um, no, well, I, I found my email, and it simply read, Hey, Maya, who I found in the credits is the extras casting person, uh, emailing as a response to the post in per film and performance form, which we still use. Uh, for extras and hounds of love. Uh, and then I wrote apparently, I didn't write apparently in the email, but in the email mm-hmm. I wrote that I was 68 uh, kilos. And I'm like, I definitely don't weigh that much anymore. <laughs> I was, I guess I was skinny back then. Um, however, what I found really interesting is I only gave her five days in all of February for availability. There's not yeah. a lot of availability. Was I really... Was yeah, I, I was going to say. Was I actually that interested? You were on your gap year. But. Well, yeah, this is, and I attribute this film to my first job because I applied for, I remember finishing high school at the end of 2015 mm. and I had a few months where I was kind of doing nothing, just like catching up with friends and yeah. sort of living that, that freestyle lifestyle for a bit. And the one job that I actually applied for was it's a Domino's drive. It was literally the one, and I was pretending like I applied for way more jobs. It was the one that I did. And at this point I wasn't like checking my emails or anything. I just applied and put the email and whatever. Now, it wasn't until I found this posting on, on Facebook and I emailed to apply for it. And I remember that at this point, I'm not checking my emails. Mm. I'm like, okay, well, now I'm going to now I'm gonna put my email on my phone and actually check it regularly. And sure enough, the same week that I applied for this film, I got the job offer um, or rather the interview from Domino's. So part of me feels like if it wasn't for this film, I would have never got that first job because it's the only reason I was checking my email that week. There you go. Very, very interesting, Zeke. Very interesting. We could talk about the interconnectedness and importance that mm. this film will have in the second half of the show. But before we get there, Jake, have you caught anything else in the last week? Quite a few things, actually. Oh yeah. Quite proud of myself. Um, I'll start with I'll start with the the big one, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: Mutant Mayhem, mm-hmm. which I guess was previewing this weekend because I think it actually comes out wide later this week proper. But it was a big. Packed cinema, Father's Day, extreme screen, Hoyt's screening. It was very reminiscent of Spider-Verse, not in the film's aesthetic style only. Yes. As a cel-shaded animated film. 
very clearly inspired by Spider-Verse, but it was also the only other film this year I saw that had this many families and young kids attending the film. And um, I, I remember complaining about the kids at the Spider-Verse screening. I remember complaining about the kid at the Indiana Jones screening who had these like big light-up shoes mm. in this dark theater that really annoyed me. Um, but this time I want to give the kids a little props. Because props I kids. thought they were going to lose their minds when this happened. When the movie started, it was open captions. The entire film was subtitled. Really? And I was like, oh no. <laughs> and I heard it immediately like, Dad, when are the words going away? I was like, oh crap. <laughs> but they were actually pretty decent, all things considered. It actually didn't bother them too much. So I was I was glad about that. Yeah, that's, I thought that was That really, is wild to think about. I thought it was interesting. And the only other time I've seen this... Was this... Did it have CC on the... I don't think so. No, I didn't notice it. And I checked my ticket afterwards. There's nothing on there. Because this happened to Babylon earlier this year at the same cinema in Garden mm. City. And it was, it was different there because it was a much smaller crowd. There was like maybe six or seven people there. And the person at the front row was very clearly deaf. Yes. And so it made sense. I was like, okay. Now, I'm positive the same thing happened, that there was a deaf person amongst this huge crowd of kids and, and dads and families. And there would have been the request ahead of time, probably. It must have been, yeah. I was just surprised and 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 more so surprised that the kids weren't that annoying about it. So props to them. Except the one guy who literally, when, when a Superfly comes into the movie, played by, I think, Ice Cube, uh, someone pulled out their phone and just started looking up the cast. I was like, you can do that after the movie's done. It's not going to bother you that much, is it? <laughs> it just annoys me so much. In the middle of the theatre, just holds phone up, scrolling through cast. I'm like, uh, if I can tell what you're doing on your phone, then your phone is out way too much. You're not trying to hide it. <laughs> All right, now I'm going to talk about the actual films, because I've just been talking about the actual... What were your thoughts? The experience of it. Um, I thought it was great. Okay. It's it's sort of the Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg effication of the Ninja Turtles. So, you know, you're super bad or probably more contemporarily good boys in the sense that it's still, like, applicable and fun to families, but it has, you know, the Turtles are very much teenagers. They're 15 in the film, and I think they're played by actual teenagers. I wrote their names down. So you've got Micah Abbey, uh, Shaman Brown Jr., Nicholas Cantu, and Brady Noon, who... He was actually in Good Boys, so there's a little bit of a tie right there. Um, they're all absolutely phenomenal. They're hilarious. The performances are so naturalistic. They were clearly re- recording in the same booth together and just kind of riffing off each other. The chemistry is amazing between the four turtles, so I, I love that. And going back to the Spider-Verse comparison, it's very mm. clearly inspired by a very cel-shaded look, but I loved all the little details in there, like the squiggly lines that represent explosions and like the actual design and aesthetic of New York itself. And like you see all the scaffolding around that kind of feels like it's unfinished and the drawing of it is unfinished as well. A lot of details like that. And even it gets really kind of uh, cruddy and grimy. And there's even moments like we, we see... It's a Splinter's shadow when he gets mutated and turns from a normal rat into, like, a mutant rat. And it's just the shadow you're looking at, but it's, like, genuine body horror, the way it's portrayed and, like, really disgusting. And all the character designs are also kind of... It's all, like, great. I love it. It's not clean at all. It's mm. very stylistic, and it's full of, like, R&B, hip-hop, rap soundtracks, and there's lots of 
intertextual mentions of you know there's like drake and there's like chris pine jokes in there where they have like he's cut out in their sewer um and then the, some people call them like uh they call the turtle shrek and the hulk from time to time there's like a lot of that meta intertextual yeah. Pop- comedy cultural in there. references exactly yeah. which which might age pretty poorly but i, w- I was quite enjoying it for what it, it was part of the overall aesthetic mm. um and hey if it ain't broke don't fix it in the sense that i love that we're not just trying to copy like a Disney formula or a Pixar formula. We're, we're actually copying something that does feel incredibly expressive in the Spider-Verse films, at least from an animation standpoint. So I was in love with all that stuff. I thought it was all very gripping and, and awesome. Um, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's just a style. I mean, we we love both of Mitchell's versus the Machines. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's, that's inspired as well, I reckon, by yeah. Spider-Verse. And Maybe not as clearly, but it's definitely in there. Like the multi-layered, like the different scenes are in different styles, mm. and that when the turtles like imagining their future as like popular high school students, it's like they, they become like just simple sketches, almost like a kid drew them. Yeah, like I like the ever-changing style that it that it does, but um, narratively, it does some interesting things. I really like, and I hope this isn't really a spoiler, but I love that the whole plot and and framing of the story is the turtles want to be accepted by society they feel like monsters and master splinters like you must never talk to the humans they will um, ostracize you and hate you um and they get into this mindset that if they become heroes they will become popular and they can go to high school and and be like ferris bueller when they're watching his movie and things like that and what i loved is that when they finally meet the villains and like you know the bebop and rocksteady and superfly and all these famous ninja turtle villains not shredder maybe for the sequel but i love that they actually have like a kinship and they're friends initially because mm. they feel that same level of discrimination from the new yorkers and i was like that's kind of clever i don't think i've seen ninja turtles take this route before not the way they do in this film mm. but that being said i thought there were a few issues i actually found april to be quite unlikable in this film interesting i just thought she was I don't even know what it was. Like, she's obviously meant to be quite sassy, and, like, she's she's nice to the turtles, but I, I don't know what it was. It was something about her personality. I, I'm definitely not meant to dislike her, but I kind of do. And I'm, I'm trying to pinpoint where that came from, from her character. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, we have a very clear idea of the four turtles and their unique personalities. You know, Donnie Tello's the um like the kind of the nerdy tech guy leonardo's the leader michelangelo is the funny one raf's the hothead mm. we have very clear ideas of of who they are and i found this film didn't really utilize those unique personalities well like like i was saying earlier i think the performances between the four actors are so great and naturalistic they feel like you know great banteristic brothers but they didn't feel a whole lot like individual characters and i think that's because there was never any conflict amongst them yeah actually you know what i think literally just saying that i think that that's what it was is that when you look at that the 2007 animated tmnt film there's conflict because leo it feels like he abandoned everyone so they're all a little upset at him and then raf gets frustrated that he's not out you know fighting crime and helping so he does like his night watchman thing and th- there's conflict and it ends up in a big you know famous battle between leo and raf and this film has none of the uh inter conflict there's a little bit like them trying to hide from Splinter so he doesn't know what they're doing up and above the sewers. But, but they're I mean, all kind of on the same page. They're all on the same page the whole time. I think that's why it doesn't feel like we're highlighting their differences enough. Like there's lines from Donnie about how he's like a fan of Forza and that's how he learned to drive or he loves anime. 
but it's scarcely ever... But then I say that, but then the final battle, there's a great moment where uh, Leo sort of talks them all up and he kind of gives them all their own little motivational speeches that speak to each one of them individually. So maybe I'm being really picky there because I do think they sort of address it. But it it could be that room to grow aspect, isn't it? Yeah, I I think that's what a sequel needs, you're right, is, is more conflict amongst the four characters. I think you highlighted the the arc in which they go on, which is the being accepted and, mm. and accepting themselves yep. as a collective. That the second film will allow more for that inter um, inner turmoil and conflict, yeah. which might come back to, like you said, the not not having Shredder in this film, who is what their their kind of magnum opus mm. villain, right? Yeah, it's definitely like their um, Green Goblin or um, their Joker, for example. I won't spoil it, but I, I think it's very clear that a second film will include Shredder and, you're right, I think have more internal conflict amongst the Turtles. Now that they've, you know, yeah, you have to imagine the end of this film, they overcome um, their idea of what it means to be uh, popular and liked by the, by the humans and wh- whatever that may mean to them is mm. maybe how they overcame this this need or this ill want, so to speak. Anyway, I'm going to that. I enjoyed it quite a lot. I enjoyed yes. it, and I think people should see it because I think it's a great Ninja Turtles film. And if you want to hear about that, just go to uh, Jake the Clicker on the on the old Letterbox for his oh, review. Very good. I've been really good with that this year. Yeah, I reviewed almost every film that I've seen this year, with an extensive review. It looks like too, so very mm. impressive. Oh, excellent. Well, yeah. what, before I go on, Zeke, is there anything else you caught in the last week? Yeah, look, I, I did catch one film other than the film of the week, um, continuing on the uh, Tom Cruise sort of bandwagon, I guess. Oh, okay. Been oh, I didn't notice that, yeah. Um, I, I caught the 1988 film Cocktail, which sort of comes around the sort of, you know, we, we talked about Risky Business, obviously being that breakout role for Cruise at the start of the early, mid-80s, and he then goes on to make films such as as Top Gun and mm. um, in and around this time and The Color of Money also in and around from this time is the film Cocktail which is quite an interesting film um, centers around a uh, aspiring businessman basically getting drawn into the allure of being a cocktail bartender and, mm. and it's such a at first I, I found that I was like, okay, what's this kind of film trying to do? It had a little bit of risky business about it in terms of its sort of uh, alluring tone mm. and, and, and this sort of robbing the innocence and naivete of a young youth. Um, and it, it definitely has a little bit of that in there. I think the second half, it gets completely lost in what it is. There's, there's almost this moment where... Tom Cruise, his character goes to Jamaica, and the film loses itself on that that holiday to Jamaica. Because <laughs> um, the first half of the film is very enticing, you know. Yep. He meets this Australian mentor bartender, um, played by, and I'll just get crikey, yeah, crikey. It's always funny when you hear Australians <laughs> in the eighties, in particular, because they've got that real. Oh, I could, yeah, especially back then. I mean, we still get it now, even, but yeah, but it, it, it's it, quite it, funny. It's quite. It was quite <laughs> hilarious, um, and it's. It was a, I'll just quickly get his. Was name. it a male, female? But it was a, it was a male. Uh, okay. Brian Brown. Cry okay. Um Yeah, he sort of takes him under his wing and teaches him all the art of cocktails. And there's some great one-shot sequences between okay. Brown and 
and um and crews as they're basically throwing cocktail shakers to each other and doing stuff and this mm. synchronicity and and he's like Cruz is still performing while doing all of this stuff very yeah. Tom Cruise-esque he has to learn this niche skill and of course we, you know we were talking about it with risky business but at this point we had started to see what a Tom Cruise performance was which is oh you need to learn how to play pool really well. I'm going to learn how to play pool really well. Oh, you need to fly a jet, fly a jet. Oh, you need to be a... The suaveness of The his, ridiculous yeah. cocktail waiter. And and I was thinking, <laughs> oh man, is this going to be like a Magic Mike situation? Which mm. I, I think the first Magic Mike's really, really solid. Where mm. it's this character who just... Who gets sort of taken under the wing by an older mentor character, which is Tatum and, and under Matthew McConaughey and gets... Uh, Matthew com- McConaughey in the first Magic Mike? Yeah. Ah, oh, um, I didn't know that. Um, and gets completely sort of enveloped into this uh, seductive lifestyle where you're like seducing women. But, you know, obviously in Magic Mike, it's through their... their gyrations or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and in, in Cocktail, it's uh, through their art of a bartender and... I thought that that's where the film was going. Like he'd get caught in like I don't know some drugs and stuff like right. that. Right, like get caught it in spirals a, out of control, like a mafioso spiral, and it does not. Well, go I guess because risky business kind of does. So I think that's maybe where you're, yeah. you're looking for it. And, and to be honest, a natural narrative kind of would fall that way. I think you know you get caught in the the glitz and glamour of this thing, but also the the roughs and tumbles of hospitality. And they touch on it in the first 30 minutes where, you know, he's trying to go to business school during the day and he's falling asleep in class, mm. but then has this sort of moment where he's like, well, I'm going to go out and make my name. And the film just gets, like I said, gets lost in Jamaica. And, and back, that's when Elizabeth Shue comes in where I she's the love- lost in Jamaica. Where she's the love interest that she he meets because she's on a girls trip, and mm. then the film becomes this weird sort of romance, but not really a romance because Tom Cruise's character does stuff that does not make him likable or compelling. And then I I it without spoiling the film, mm. it just goes from zero to a hundred in the complete wrong direction to the point where you're like, what was the film I was watching in the first thirty minutes? Cause yeah. It's like this film had an idea for a film off a very, at best, a paper-thin but a fun and enticing concept. I mean, sure. at the end of the day, Magic Mike is a good film, but if you pitch that in a room, everyone, all they're going to think about is is that it's about male strippers. But yeah. there's there's a lot, there's a little bit more to it, and, and that's to uh, Soderbergh's credit, I think mm. it is at the time, and... and um, I think this film, maybe in the right hands with a, a revised script and a different direction, could actually be quite interesting. Okay. Um, there were some really good sequences in it, but overall I was left... Underwhelmed. Un- very underwhelmed. Like I'd mm. been served the wrong cocktail that I spent $25 on. Oh, damn. But back to you, Jake. Yeah, no, that's um very interesting. I'm, I'm curious. I might look more into that. Although I don't know if I'm necessarily keen to watch it based on... Honestly, just watch it for like, there's like two scenes where Tom Cruise does a Tom Cruise thing where he does a, a skill that you've probably worked three years for that he gets <laughs> exceptionally good at insanely quickly. Uh, we love him for it's it. It's that small man energy. That's it. I wish I had that, but I'm just small and and untalented. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't go that far. Uh, well, the other film I saw this week, so this is a little closer to home, not in the same way The Hounds of Love is, of course, but... But in a similar way, so it's a film called Violet, 
which was directed by Stephen Mahalovich, who I guess he's a friend of the show. He was on it in our episode of The Dry, episode 106, uh, where we talked about the music in The Crossing, which was his first film, and now this is his second. So he's, you know, he's working quite fast, less than three years to pump out a, mm. a local feature in WA on your own from, from what it sounds like. It's pretty damn impressive. Um, so I saw this Saturday night. I think it was like a preview screening, and I think it's about to do the like the festival run around Australia now, which is really exciting. And my my biggest takeaway from it, well, first off, I reckon this is Rachel Ziegler's or Rachel Zegler's favorite version of Snow White mm. because <laughs> it is the most messed up version of Snow White that I've <laughs> quite ever seen. Not literally, but just there's a lot of like references to it in the film and. I think the characters watching it at one point, like at an adaptation of, of Snow White that's really messed up, and then there's the whole um, evil witch incarnation mm. as the neighbour, and she's giving the rotten apple to to our hero, Sonya. So there's a lot of those Snow White references in the film. But my main takeaway really was that, first off, I didn't expect this to be the kind of horror film it was. Yeah. And I, I talked to Stephen a little bit about it um, before and after, and the way he sees it, it's not really a horror film. I think it totally is, but more so like an art house abstract horror film, like almost like cranking the Babadook up to 11 in terms of its like surrealistic photography and abstract storytelling. I mean, it it's it's pretty nuts. And, I, and what I appreciated so much about that is that the crossing his previous film is it's got dark elements in it and some sore subject matter but it is a crowd pleasing film i mean you know with halo films that's how they were sort of pitching mm. it they had the videos of and i would edit some of these videos of people coming in and be like oh that was amazing and, and, and i'm not trying to uh, say one way or the other about the quality of film what i mean is that it was a film that very much worked as like a crowd pleasing people felt good walking out of it yeah and this is the complete total opposite i reckon the majority of the people that sit down and watch this at the cinema, especially like with no prior knowledge, I'm gonna be like, "What on earth is this?" Yeah, because it's just so abstract and bold and and weird. And and I, I mean, I loved it. I was it was a nice, pleasant surprise for me. And for me, it was very much an exploration about how grief is sort of manifest manifested mm. and and how it's dispersed. And and I really can't say more about the themes of the film without spoiling it because it is a very twisty plot. And a lot of things are sort of slowly unveiled to you over time. So you as an audience, maybe you're you're sort of trying to chase after the film mm. and figure out what on earth is going on. Like why why are all these surrealistic nightmare sequences happening? Why why is it all of a sudden like a silent film, um, which I think is very Kaufman esque in it, in its approach, and you almost have to feel it more than think it in that case. Um, so I I really enjoyed that aspect of it of chasing it in yeah. a way. Uh, and really being surprised by the that idea, this idea of grief and how it's, um, how that idea sort of changes and evolves. That by the time you get to the ending, you have a whole different idea of what the film was trying to, to do in the first place, or mm. more specifically, what these nightmares were trying to tell its protagonists about the actions had in this film. Yeah. And I, I have to be vague. I'm sorry. I do recommend it because it, it's definitely worth it. I, I said the same thing for Titan. For those who are willing to partake, it is worth it. You will be rewarded by the end. And that being said, I was actually, for how abstract the film is, I was surprised it even gave as much closure as it did. So, there yeah. you go. Uh, I found it very interesting. Uh, the upside down framing and 
striking costumes, striking color schemes, the great makeup and visual effects with all the, like I said, the evil incarnations of all the other characters. A little Wizard of Oz in there as well, I suppose. How you got your neighbors, and there's almost like two different versions of them in terms of their appearance. Um, yeah, no, I thought it was quite fun. Fun in a really messed up way, if that's your, <laughs> if that's your takeaway. Now, the only other thing I saw this week, well, I saw a few things, actually. So, we had Andy's movie night the other night, mm-hmm. and we watched not one, not two, but three pilot episodes to shows. And I haven't seen any of these shows before. This is a whole new experience for me. Very fun. I'll start with the one that I was most amped about and had the most fun with. I don't know if you've seen... Have you seen Ozark, Zeke? No, I've always wanted to get around oh, to it. Oh, interesting. I thought you had for some reason. I think I'd seen maybe the first 10 minutes of the first episode. Interesting. But I, I could not remember. Okay. It does start with this big um, sort of monologue um, about sort of money and money's effect on society and everything. Yeah, it's a, it's a film Bateman. that most definitely... I, uh, sorry, a series I've most definitely wanted to get amongst. Mm. Um, I think I'm going to jump on the seat because the first episode was awesome. Yeah. It was damn good. It goes from zero to 100 real quick. <laughs> but in a good way. No, I loved it. I thought, first off, it was also directed by Jason Bateman, so that's awesome. He's kind of doing a Barry there with Bill mm. Hader sort of really honing the show, not just as a star, but as, I guess, a director and a producer and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just felt like the way they structured all the the stakes Mm. and, like, the dramatic elements they're going to take through to the rest of the show was just really clever. Um, I love the scenes where he's calling up, like, the the banks and, like, shareholders and they're trying to cash out on all of his different, like, diversification as quick as possible to... I, I won't get too much into why, but basically he needs $7 million stat and he does have the money after years of laundering money. But I love, I love that so much of the first episode is about him just trying to get his own money out yeah. and that all the feds and everyone are just so like, are you, are you being taken hostage? Is someone kidnapped? Are you, are you wearing a white? Like, what's going on? And he's like, nah, I just need the money. <laughs> and, and then of course that's going to play, I imagine into the rest of the show with, with all of a sudden him and his family have disappeared into the Ozarks and, Oh, that's weird. Where did they go? Interesting. So I loved all the setup there as well as the way I, I don't want to spoil too much, but like the, there's something that the wife is doing in this first episode. I love the way they tied it into the wider sort of mob story or gangster mm. story, if you will. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was great. And a lot of people would told me like, Jay, you got to watch it. It's, it's like breaking bad. It's like breaking bad. And the parallels are there, the money laundering, they even put a body in a barrel in the first episode. Like it's, there is a pretty clear parallels and, and obvious connections, but I think the difference here, obviously Breaking Bad's transformation story. It's yeah. a bit of a slow burn. It takes a while for, you know, the characters to sort of come out of their shell, even if that's a very evil shell, but nevertheless, this one is, is very much like pedal to the metal sort of pace. Mm. And I'm kind of curious how they can keep it at this pace for four seasons. I think it's four seasons. But I was hooked very quickly. I thought the storytelling was awesome. The, the filmmaking was awesome. Um, yeah. Intrigued to see more. Now, I don't know if you've seen either of these other two shows. Have you seen Mr. Robot? No. Also got uh... the first two seasons sitting on the shelf. Oh, you got it on DVD. Nice. I do. I Excellent. do have the first two seasons. I bought that way back when like you, Jack, and I used to... Go to the JB half oh, nice. Yeah. What a throwback. 
Yeah, no. So we watched the first episode. It's 65 minutes long, that first episode. It is jam-packed. But, I, I mean, that's the thing with pilots. Like, that you kind of you almost have to start the story at, like, an accelerated throttle. Yeah. To kind of establish everything you'd need to to get the audience to want to watch more. Yeah, I think that it's... Because you're 100% right. Like, when we're talking about the formula for a pilot, you've got to shove a lot of things in there, basically, mm. to entice. But it's it's like everything. I don't think you have to shove too much stuff in there. I, I think, like, I really do stand by. I do not like the Game of Thrones pilot. I think Interesting. It, I think it's overwhelming with its uh, information mm. that it tries to feed you in that first episode. And I think it's very hard retrospectively because you've watched so much of the show now that that, that first episode's like... You rewatch it now and you go, oh, that's really good that they've put all this information there. But in isolation, it's a tough first episode. Whereas something like Vikings, I think, introduces lore and, and concepts, but keeps it relatively simple. Right. Um, keeps it very basically just certain people in power are deciding things. Other people in power have aspirations, this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Doesn't feel too difficult to follow. Westworld's kind of the same. Westworld's basically like just the waits to the last line to open up the what if character, what if these robots gain autonomy, and then that's oh the, I see the rest so, of it. So just, like the overall hook is like right at the very end. Yeah, the the rest of the episode is just basically just uh, one of the robots is malfunctioning. Why is it malfunctioning? Mm. And then. Welcome to basically a welcome to Disneyland episode. And, <laughs> and the first season has that, it has that beautiful parallel narrative where we've got this weird sort of autonomy gaining arc happening at the same time. Um, we're, we're watching someone experience the park, and yeah, it's just such a fun season. But the first episode is good at eluding that stuff, so um, it's funny because I sort of <clears throat> looking back on the the show that I had wrote and, and tried to create 11 episodes in high school. And it's funny to go back to high school to talk about like my own writing, but I do look back and I'm like, I, I'm pretty proud of, of the pilot in terms of knowing the story and all the information that needed to be dispersed to audiences from, the, from early on. Mm. And like, okay, well what, what's the happy medium in terms of episode one being like pedal to the metal, get as much story in there to get people interested without just going crazy. I think I sort of hit the right note there in terms of the premise of it being a road trip, like an 11-episode road trip. And, okay, I need to get them on the road by at least the second-to-last act, maybe 45 minutes into the first episode. That's just insane to think. <laughs> that I did that? <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even get my kids to write two minutes, let alone 45 minutes. So. Oh, God. i got to find that. I've turned half of them into Celtex projects. Yeah. It might be fun to go back and do like a final draft of the whole thing, but I would I would structure it so differently now, mm. because I I did the same thing as as kind of like an Ozark where it's like I, you can make a version of that show that's kind of more chill and coming of age with the teenage high school students, and for some reason I wanted to throw in cops, drug dealers, shootouts. That's I mean, all in there, and it, it doesn't I need mean, to be. It, that's sort of like that's like every teenager yeah. goes there, <laughs> and it's so hard to try and rein some of that in. Where you're like, you know, they're like, oh, but what if we add this thing in and add this thing in? They immediately want to make something like out of cod, and you're like, why? Like, why not yeah. just simple? Exactly. But, no, but that's but what's exciting at the time. It's untapped that imagination, age. really. That's the thing. Well, the thing, and I'll say it on the podcast because I mean, who cares? 
the original premise was based around the idea of the main character and all the characters are about to graduate, like three weeks out from graduating high school, yeah. is one of them is robbed and trying to defend his home, he accidentally kills one of the robbers. And it's this whole aspect of the show, I didn't do enough research in. I'm sure there's like more legalese to make it all make sense. But essentially, he feels like he's in legal trouble. And so he convinces all these friends, he's the only one for driver's license, to go on a road trip with him. And that's sort of like the catalyst to get them on the road. And then all the interpersonal drama and relationships bond from there, which is all great. But I would totally 1 million percent change the whole catalyst. Um, the uh, what would you call it? not turning yeah, point? I was just gonna imagine. Could you imagine if you had met maybe two more versions of you, and you would have, <laughs> had, like, you have ended up making this film? Uh, we got about a... an hour of it shot. I know that's insane yeah. when you think about it. <laughs> just like the sheer dedication, you almost want to go back to Jake in the past and meet him. I actually had this thought. Talk, this is not tangential or anything. Okay. I had this thought. I have those thoughts when you're like about to go to sleep and your brain starts making up scenarios and stuff. Yeah. And I went, what? One of my thoughts was, what if I had gone back to 17-year-old you and went, we're going to be friends in the future, yeah. but you're already <laughs> making movies, so I want to start making movies. Because yeah. <laughs> you, just, you just didn't have that in high school. Like, no. Well, look, I had I had great friends in high school that, that helped. You did. But they didn't have that same drive like they weren't going to study they weren't going to go to uni and study filmmaking for example yeah and and i probably i probably pushed a lot of their patience to be fair i'm I'm sure i did well that, that was the problem is i wanted to make this 600 page show and like i had friends that were able to get me an hour of footage i should have just made like an hour-long feature and we all would have like felt energized by actually completing the thing yeah. we spent all these hours on. I mean, that's probably where the problem. And not that I'm not friends with any of these people anymore. I'm still friends with a few. For example, I mean, uh, Bree. She was a huge help in finding random abandoned locations and breaking into schools for shots. And we're still friends. I went to a wedding last year. Yeah. But to your point, like in terms of the drive, in terms of as a career. Yeah. Needing more people like you in the in the fold at that age, but. What I would do now differently about that script is I wouldn't have it so, like, he's, like, on the run from the law or he killed someone or this or that. I would have it so one of the friends has a friend on the other side of the country. They visited Sydney or Melbourne or whatever, and they couldn't get back home. They, like, ran out of money. They couldn't get a flight home. And so she begs the one person she knows, which is the main character who has a license, to go on the road trip to collect their friend. I'm like, that is a much more clever more subtle way to get them on the road and like so much more in to- in tone and tune with the high school work. aesthetic. I, mean, it I think that's cool. And that's yeah. it. You kind of want to touch on that sort of uh, interpersonal drama. I know that um, that show Upright that had a season that okay. was with Tim Minchin that was about going from east to west coast and mm. it was about them carrying this piano across the whole <laughs> country but it's got all these kind of Holly Hunter was uh, hiding inside the piano yeah it was all kinds <laughs> of uh, stuff for that but it was a really it was a pretty decent show to be honest yeah cool um, but it is yeah there's definitely stuff in a road trip stuff. it's just it's wild to think a 16 year old mm kid wanting to make that kind of stuff or wanting to just do that and yeah you just hope you meet someone like that as a teacher you hope you meet a kid that's like that that driven untapped and just ruthless even well my Um, my media teacher would lend equipment you know and he would make it would make sure like it went for the school and everything but he would because he just knew that i like doing stuff on my own time 
Yeah. And he helped out. He gave us mics and things like that. It's really handy. Yeah. So back to Mr. Robot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like a career update speckled in there. I know, exactly. I might as well skip it now. It's <laughs> a career uh, career update from several years ago. Nearly 10. But you liked it. Because I started writing that. I liked it. Um, I, I Like we were talking about earlier, I think it is a bit overstuffed. There's a lot of information there. And and not that it's like Game of Thrones in the sense that there's so much like lore and world building that needs to be established. Mm. I The way they do it is succinct enough in terms of... In, it's like, okay, here's Rami Malek's character. And even though he's a bit of a pill popper, sleeps with random women... Um, bit of a tech geek, works for this big corporation and hates that he works there, but has to do it for the bills and whatnot. All of that is introduced after the first scene with him basically blackmailing this uh, sex predator that he found online through, like, hacking Mm. and basically meeting them in person, scaring the crap out of them, making them think they can pay their way out, and, oh, I've already called the cops on you with an anonymous tip. So he's a vigilante. He's Batman. <laughs> and the, this is like his moonlighting sort of job. So it it, it kind of introduces the character in the right way and then uh, the relationships he has and then this evil corporation and mm. this other hacking group he meets that want to take down this evil corporation and like how does that play into his vigilante ideology? Like it 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 very much peppers all those ideas out in a, in a good, succinct way. I just wish the pilot was like 20 minutes shorter. Mm. So it kind of forced the writers to like, okay, well, what really needs to be dispersed right now? Now, am I curious to watch more? I am. I'm not like driven like I was with Ozark. Oh my God, I have to watch the next episode. This is amazing. Yeah, you weren't like proper hooked. Exactly. But it's also a first episode and like, I don't want to, I don't want to sound negative. I did enjoy it. And I think that was all laid out really well. And I love the, the style. It was so novel in 2015. You know, he, he's, he's talking about society like he's the Joker. <laughs> you know, and, oh, like, we're all materialistic zombies and, you know, phones have made us brainless and we worship Steve Jobs. Why do we do... Like, that whole thing. Yeah. And the show's even, like, edited and shot with this sort of nihilistic uh, tech bubble in mind. Uh, just, like, really awkward framing and really energetic editing. And his voiceover is just constant throughout the whole thing. So it really established itself stylistically which I'm, I'm curious to watch more because i do like this and i do love the the hacking scenes there so i don't know how accurate they are i'm guessing a little bit <laughs> there was mm. a lot of text but yeah i'm i didn't love it i enjoyed it i'm curious to watch more i don't know when i'm gonna get to it well we'll see now the last one i'll get through really quickly i definitely don't think you've seen this one we watched the first episode of death note no which i think is a 2006 or 2009 anime Super edgy anime, might I add. Now, I think everyone knows the the concept of death proof. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's a uh, writing... Write the name writes, in the book, yeah. it kills the person, and, and there's, like, demonic aspects to it where the demon dropped the book on Earth. The guy just happened to find it, and now he's essentially playing death. Um, and what I found really interesting with this pilot, and there's only 37 episodes, so I might just, like, binge this at some point very soon, because I am interested. I think the idea is fantastic. It's got a very edgy approach to it, which I mm. love. And, and that might have just been the English dub that we watched with some of the lines sounded really hysterical and on the nose. But <laughs> but I loved it. it. It was so great from that standpoint. But what I found so interesting is that this is a story where you could do the, the Breaking Bad thing where he's a very good, kind-hearted person. And like by having this ability to just murder people so easily and without any consequence, that he slowly becomes corrupt and immoral and... And his mindset for who deserves to die becomes so corrupt and evil. 
And yet it doesn't really do that because he's already kind of messed up in the head <laughs> in this first episode. He kills dozens and dozens of people almost immediately. <laughs> and I, we're all laughing like, oh, this guy's got a screw loose already. He just doesn't care. Oh my god. I think even the demon, he kind of freaked out a little of how nihilistic he is. <laughs> so I, I thought that was very interesting that from the first episode, they're like, no, 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 this isn't like a big character change. He's like, he's kind of already messed up. Which means I'm scared where it's going to go from oh, here. Yeah. <laughs> if it's only going to get worse and worse. It's so. got like that invincible, just l- like evaporation yeah. of life. Yeah, exactly. Of. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious to watch more of that. And because it's so short, that might be the main reason I actually do watch it sometime in the near future. But yeah, so um, out of those three, I think Ozark was definitely one that really gripped me. And to be fair, everyone in the universe was telling me to watch it, so... There about, you go. About time, but I'm glad I got those other two in as well. Beautiful. Do you have anything to add in career updates before we move into the film of the week, Jake? Um, ooh, I don't know. What's that? Well, we had we had a big meeting this morning. Yes. With the VR side of things, mm-hmm. pitched to government, so that was cool. So I got the DCP working on the the backlot screen yeah. and played a big 11 minute presentation, and uh, we tried out some headsets on some nice folk, and uh, yeah, I think they liked it. Talked about Hamilton. We've got to talk about Hamilton, Zeke. With that kind of crowd, you got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> they probably all, they probably all I seen success. I do, I do. I genuinely miss it. You know, Jesse Armstrong came out and confirmed today that the um, that Kendall's name was underlined, not crossed out. I'm a little annoyed by that. I don't believe him. Who? So who's Jesse Armstrong? The uh, the main like show executive. Okay. The showrunner, I should say. No. I don't believe him either. <laughs> That's one of those, I'm just trying to keep the show like peppered relevant. Oh, uh, maybe. I think he was doing a talk and he mentioned it, so it was a little spur of the moment, but uh, I just underlined no. No, it was crossed out, man. Oh, you believe it's crossed out? I. It's definitely crossed out. No, that, that, why would you need to underline? So His name's already the, in print. Who was the successor for you? Do you really, if it wasn't... Uh, like sure, well now I mean we have to we have to talk about it. who do you think the successor was, who Logan would have picked if he had yeah. to, if he could choose. Oh, crap. Or do you think kind of that, would say Kendall? Though, that's the thing. Or do you honestly? think... But that's the question. That, when did he write that letter? Well, or do you honestly think that he actually did get thoroughly give up on all of them and knew it was just going to go to someone like Tom? I think. I think there was a very high chance that he wasn't going to give it to any of them. I think so too. I think yeah. that is the, the the sad and grimace reality is that it wasn't underlined; it was crossed out. And well, how many times no did he intention. almost just give it to some random person throughout the entire show? Yeah, and whoever he was sleeping with <laughs> in any well, given season. The intention, I think, was most definitely yeah, was just to pass it. It was just whoever gobbles them up, whatever mm. big fish gobbles them up. There wasn't a a question of legacy or anything. That's true. It would because have been his, his legacy... Matson, yeah. Well, that's it, isn't it? Maybe it's the, the nihilism of the fact that he knew that he had just spent his whole life gobbling up smaller fish that mm. now that he was no longer and didn't feel like anyone could fill his shoes. There's definitely a psychological angle to the point... I love we're just talking about succession spoilers now. That um, as soon as he decided to sell these companies, his heart gave out. Yeah. There was no reason left for him to live after he made that decision. Yeah. I love that psychological aspect to the way they structured that last season. It's but... just that I just there hasn't been a, a show that's as 
and compelling or engaging mm. or entertaining or spurs the talking about what's next i wonder we we don't know with the writer strike no exactly that's it so it's gonna be a while so maybe it is see. worth still talking about and cherishing or maybe like you said picking up a show that's already done and dusted like ozark and just starting there yeah no, starting there point. instead well it's time for us to move into the film of the week but jake what are we watching this week in the show zeke we're watching hounds of love Do you want a lift? Oh, are you sure? Yeah, let's jump in. Yeah, I read your little diary. Your mum wouldn't let you out, so you snuck out, didn't you? She's probably not even looking for you. <laughs> She's prettier than me. Come on, Evie. You're my queen. When Vicky Maloney is randomly abducted from a suburban street by a disturbed couple, she soon observes the dynamic between her captors and quickly realises she must drive a wedge between them in order to survive. Clever girl. For some reason I thought, no, Sam Neill. He's, uh, he's yes. not in this, he's not in this. It's summer, 30 degrees in Australian suburbia. And there's nothing like going out for a nighttime walk <laughs> and accepting a lift from strangers. Yeah, Christmas time. I love the crappy little Christmas tree in their living room. That's like the one thing that reminds you it's Christmas I think <laughs> in this film. It's great. I mean, the, the first thing this film always speaks, and we're talking about sort of the cultural significance, but even as, as filmmakers, I think... That this film coming around in 2016 really hits... Very seminal for us. Well, it is. It's very important because I, I think, you know, obviously you and I both started a film degrees in 2017, but mm. it finished our high school experience by 15, so... And knew we were doing film in 2016, so... Yeah, well, that, that email of me applying to be an extra here, that I mean, that's perfect proof right there. This was like, oh, I want to be a filmmaker. Yeah. But the timing was like... I mean, I was already making that show I mentioned earlier, but... and. Then yeah, to, have, it was to have, time. like you said, to have not only just an Australian film, but a film that's set on a relatively small budget in Perth, Western Australia, which, mm. and, you know, if you know anything about Australia, we're not in the top two or three cities that you would shoot a film in. It's it, We're all and often an afterthought. There's the joke, WA is the way to our state. Mm. Um, I think have a film like this and then have it premiere at something like Venice yep. and be such a a successful film. Mm. Bit um, of a critical darling. 
yeah, definitely a critical darling. It's it's quite awesome in a way, and I think it helps spur on that that dream that oh, good films can be made here, like really mm. good films, films that aren't just good in terms of we watch them here in Perth and go that was a really good film. What a shame it's not getting any exposure elsewhere. Mm. But to have a film have such much exposure, With universal appeal. I think there's the the key word yeah. there. Yeah, and, and, and then that becomes that conversation. You know, you're going through film school. Oh, are you going to be the one to make the next kind of film like this? Mm. Um, well, I was I was most curious. So we've both seen this film a couple of times at least mm-hmm. um, around that 2017, 2018 period. I remember, I remember going to your house and we just watched it. Mm-hmm. The I think it was like the second time we'd seen We just watched it together, which is a bit of a weird film to just like, oh, this was Hands of Love. Yeah, why not? It'd probably be more like a Wes Anderson thing you would want to yeah. <laughs> chuck on, but... Now I think it goes back to what you were saying, where like this film came out in a seminal place and a seminal time in our lives in terms of wanting to be filmmakers. And you're right, seeing the the proof in the pudding, so to speak, that a film like this can be such a a hit. And still to this day, I mean, we obviously know films that either we shot or our friends shot or friends of friends shot locally. But this still, like, more than anything else, I watched. It, I'm like, oh my god, like this is literally. I know these buildings. Yeah, I know like all these streets. It is. It is very obviously very weird to sort of see so many buildings and, and be like, yeah, I, I recognize where that is. Mm. And, um, I think a lot of it's shot in Fremantle. It definitely sure. gives off that sort of Phoenix area, um, Phoenix Fremantle area with a lot of the, particularly the, uh, there's those big long shots of the suburbs. And that's because so many of those houses just haven't aged. No, at all. exactly. They've turned like placed a sort of, uh, freeze that t- a period of time in the you know the mid to late 80s so to speak and and the other thing i love is that the roads they find you got these like steep downhill or uphill roads so you get it's not just like a flat road you're getting a lot of the um sort of the landscape is spread out because you're seeing houses sort of stretching out at different heights further down mm. the road so you're really filling up the landscape in terms of the streets sort of being covered and and yeah you can't see the ocean in any of these shots for example or um but the, the thing i was getting at was like because this is such a seminal film to us and because we watched it many times many years ago but not recently and i think it's shocking we haven't done this yet on the podcast until now i was wondering is this going to hold up that was my genuine question and would you say this film holds up for you Look, and you know what's really interesting, even just going through and looking at the the letterbox score, mm. and I was a little, I was a little surprised at it because I was like, oh, that's a, that seems a little low. I mean, three point three. I I thought, okay, yeah. Going into it, I was like, oh, that's that's a little low, and um, perhaps that's the subject matter. Maybe it's too aggressive sometimes. Mm. I like this film. I do really like this film. Um, whew. When I say I like it as much as what I've... I've maybe? Maybe not. Mm. Um, I will say that I was pleasantly surprised. I think it does hold up. In terms of, like, it is still a gripping experience. I'm still, like, entranced by the filmmaking. Yeah. And, like, it. I'm on the edge of my seat. Even though I know how it's all going to play out. I think... That- I'm entranced by the performances. And the way it's shot and, and edited and told is just... It's gripping. I think that's the best way to describe it. It's terrifying, yeah. but it's gripping. And it's it's not a comfortable film. I, I, watching it this time, I'd probably winced more than I ever did before. And sure. that's that's age showing you. I mean, like I said, the first like you said, the first time we watched this was what, what twenty eighteen together, and might have watched it one time before then in twenty seventeen. Mm. 
um, that's five years ago, and and that's a different mindset to be in. And yeah, um, uh, it's you know, I think that that changes your sort of experience. I I definitely had a love, particularly for Emma Booth's performance in this. Mm. Um, I think she's fantastic in it. Um, and I don't remember sort of her performance being as a sort of prevalent. Uh, the first time I watched this, and it sort of stuck out a lot more mm. in this film. Um, For me, with and and I want to give props because we talked about Venice and all of that, and I want to say I love that both Ashley Cummings and Emma Booth were like like acknowledged for their performances because they are very different performances for obvious reasons. And you've got Ashley Cummings winning the uh, Federa Award at Venice and then Emma Booth winning Best Actress at the um, the Actors, the Australian mm. Oscars, if you will. So they they both are acknowledged for their incredible work. And I think that's awesome because, like you said, you probably weren't really noticing the nuances of Emma Booth's performance until more recently um, and I think it's easy to get swept away by just the fact that Ashley Cummings is just embodying this, you know, complete distress and horror. And, like, that's her entire performance is just to embody this terrible thing that's just mm. happening to her. Um, while Emma Booth does get more of the nuance and a bit more of the we have to read between the lines and she's constantly thinking, she's constantly not speaking and constantly... Um, fighting internally with her own morality and what she wants and what she's willing to do for her partner. And I, I, I love that both performances are acknowledged and respected and been awarded for mm-hmm. very different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just think for me, this was the one that spoke to me the most this time around was the Emma Booth performance. Yeah. Because um, I thought Stephen Curry first immediate reactions is how disgusting and mm. creepy and horrible he is um, especially i never watched the castle until a couple of weeks ago when we <laughs> did it so it's like whoa like it really sticks out the his performance now yeah knowing what he was capable then and what he's capable now and it, and it's a really multifaceted thing this but it it's the the use of gaze in this film and mm. and from differing perspectives yes. too um so many POV shots that encapsulate gaze and awe and, and uh, power and, and sexual prowess. And I think all of them are so important. But for me, yeah, it was it was Emmett Booth's multifaceted performance. Like you said, this internal conflict of character, this absolute spiralling behaviour with no control or, or balance and her erratic nature. And, mm-hmm. and it was such a believable performance yeah. like it's almost like even now people like you know and and don't get me wrong like these are extraordinary extraordinary people in the sense that they are obviously serial killers these are the extreme of extreme people in terms of mm. spiraling and horrific behavior but it's that sort of weird Australian next storiness to them, right? That gives that that genuine layer of authenticity, which hasn't dissipated with with time. It still exists in a way, and I mean, there are lower socioeconomic families and or lower socioeconomic people we probably could see on a daily basis that could easily have similar characteristics or characteristics mm. that we could akin to them, where it's. You know, it, it's so interesting 
I mean, the film shows this in in two ways. Because, like I said, the first one is is definitely the performances. I mean, when they're in the car sort of pitching to Vicky about... I think it's a marijuana cigarette they're offering. Um, I I can't remember. Or Siggy's. I think they're offering Siggy's. Like, there is... They are natural performers in that moment. Mm. Like, you know, pretending that they left it at home and it's on the car. And, like, it's all this act that plays out to the public as well. And, like you said, there is... To both of them, there is sort of that naturalistic performance that is is sort of placed on top of the yeah. horrific personalities they actually share um, that that make it scary because they do look like people you would see down the street or you would have a chat with. And the second thing the film does that sort of rein, reinforces this is the slow motion dolly sequences down the road as we see all these different houses and, and kids like playing with the water tap going off and and this idea that it's not even just them, it's the house itself. And you know, we were saying the house got sold earlier and that the interior looks very different, but the exterior looks very much the same. It looks like any old ordinary house, yeah. you know, unlike not unlike all the other houses you see in these these dolly shots. And then that also is used to show, like you said, that scopophilic side of the film where the, the opening scene is these, I guess, like volleyball players. Yeah, and I think they're high school student netball. netball players. And it's like there's these like, uncomfortable close-ups on like their legs and their skirts and their torsos and what i love is that the first cutaway from that you would think is oh it's like a creepy man that's staring it's actually emma booth's eyes is the first thing we cut to is oh it's actually a woman that's watching them and i guess as the story unfolds you're like oh she's probably envious of them because there is that she doesn't feel attractive enough to her to her husband but I love that little subversion of expectation in that opening scene. I think that's cool. Yeah. There's a there's a lot going on here. Obviously, at the center of it is is just these sort of very heavy things. And and we did say this even before reviewing the film last week. This is not a palatable film in the sense that it is not an easy uh, no, film to watch. Um, <laughs> obviously, if you're this deep into this review, you're probably well aware of that at this point. But it is a film that I would always say it has the caution sign. It's the proceed with caution mm, sign. Because, yeah. um, you know, and it seems to be a recurring theme with a lot of Australian films, doesn't it? Um, we, we joked about that. I mean, The Stranger, we covered The Stranger, you know, I think episode 199. Yeah. Which is another sort of Australian crime, very local to us, kind of down the road, if you will. Um, Australians love their criminals and, and depicting them. Yeah, and even like, you know, you could argue Animal Kingdom has uncomfortable yeah. aspects to it and, and we've talked about The Nightingale yeah. and Babadook, which are both not easy films to watch either. No. So, um, yeah, yeah, the only one there would be Babadook in that it's more like a surrealistic horror yeah, um, than like real-life criminals, so to speak. But yeah, it's Australian. They have a type. Yeah. Australia has a type. So. Like it dark and gritty <laughs> with minimal hope. Um, well, that kind sorry, of leads... Peter Weir. Oh, I know. We, we need we need more films from Peter Weir. Please come back. Well, th- this kind of perfectly ties into this idea, like you said, true crime drama. And I think there are like their names are changed, for example, and the, and like you said, the the specific uh, suburb that they're in was you know changed. And there's like little things in. It sort of imply that this is meant to be like a more broad couple of criminals. I think you're right. It's very clearly, but it's a, it's like the the stranger. Even it's it's so sure. It doesn't hide its tracks very well. No, it's not conceding them. (laughs) And this actually sparked some comments from Kate Moore, who was the um, 
the Bernie surviving victim, so basically who Ashley Cummings is portraying in this film, and uh, the line she said when you know publicly criticizing the production of this film, so I guess this would have been as they were shooting it in 2016, I feel taken advantage of and confused. Why give them oxygen? It is disappointing because I just want them forgotten. Now, I feel like we've had this conversation with maybe The Stranger, definitely with Knit Ram. It's another mm. Aussie dark film we could talk about. Joy's film. Um, a fantastic film. A fantastic film, um, but nevertheless, a, a grueling experience um, that maybe does explore real life uh, exploit real life people and and to what 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 are your comments on this on like do you feel this film is exploitative do you feel like it's giving too much attention to the real life killers yeah. and this might be where some of that sort of uh rating is kind of being skewed sure um because i've, I've read people... those reviews that just refuse to like this film yeah the... and they're it's perfectly fine yeah it's I a think horrible that film from that standpoint. definitely there's definitely ammo ammunition yes. for being like this is glorifying something horrible and 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 well not glorifying something horrible but like you said putting that spotlight on yep. something horrible Jeez, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because, mm. you know, I think we talked about it with The Stranger where it's like, does the who has the right to the story? Yes, um, yes, that's a good, and, good way to put it. And there's a fair argument to say that the surviving victim should really have the final say on mm. whether this uh, film consensually should go ahead. Um, at least from an ethical and moral point of view, that's pretty unspoken i would feel like mm. if you're a film creator tackling this sort of subject matter you would want their blessing and if you didn't get it that would prevent that would definitely inhibit or prevent people from telling that story certain people from telling that story yeah um le- legal wise more moralistic well legal yeah, wise there's it. no issues with mm. it really um it's but it's very tricky because do you have to wait till everyone connected to the story is is passed away before mm. you can tell the story it's it's very tricky because you know how long how long was it when we had these big national disasters um films you know and i could name a ton of massive national disaster ones i mean yeah the impossible goes about oh the bali uh boxing day tsunamis mm. or you know, World Trade Center with nine eleven and and these films that tackle mass amounts of tra- you know tragedy. Yeah. Um, whereas the individuals is tricky. It is definitely tricky. But Australia's done it a lot, even with their telly movie series. They did one on Ivan Milat. They've done one mm. on Chopper. I mean, we've talked about Chopper. They just Another did Claremont one. Killers. Yeah, they did a Claremont. Their Claremont Killers. They just yeah. wrapped that one up and. There's a there's a strangeness to it, I guess. I think it's never going to make that person happy. It's, I guess, I don't know. Where do you sit with it? Yeah, it's tricky because I was thinking that as you were saying in terms of who owns the story, and I do agree it doesn't necessarily belong to the one surviving victim. And it part of it, well, there's a couple of things. Part of it is the actual quality of the film itself. And I'm not saying that... As long as the film's good, it's completely fine. That's definitely not the case. Mm. But I think there is a case to be had for a film like Hounds of Love or a film like Knit Ram, where it does go so much deeper than just depicting the horror. Like, there is a much more deeper psychological angle to it. Because I think Knit Ram does a lot to talk about um, in terms of 
public acknowledgement and awareness of mental illness and and it kind of mm. that film is constantly throwing at you these questions of like when was the cutoff where was the thing that could happen where this all could have changed yeah, and this person may have found the help yeah exactly that, I mean, that he needed the, the elongated purchasing a gun scene is, is haunting and and mm and seriously confronting and and we're lucky enough that we've grown up in a world with no excessive firearms and and such but there are places in the world the western world Mm. where you still can and it it kind of begs the question if this if like a film like nitram if that was shot in an american context what's what's the angle to it you know and uh, well, the the thing about what this film does is that it's sort of like you said, it's it's almost humanizing this couple or showing them uh, they're not like comically evil. For example, there there is a a layer to their skin that that you could see on the street and have a conversation with. And there's obviously the internal debate that that Emma Booth's character is going through. But I also understand if I was a victim of one of them and I saw a film that depicted them as anything other than than caricatures and just evil beings, I probably would be upset with that too, yeah. even if it does make for a better I, it's film. It's a psychological evaluation of, of their relate the, the White's relationship. Mm. Um, that's what it is. It really is just deconstructing. Um, and Ashley Cummins' character is, is just undergoing this traumatic incident and is a mm. protagonist that we're rooting for from the get-go she's not unlikable in in any way she doesn't really understand what's going on in her parents divorce but what teenager does i mean there's yeah. nothing about her character that is not one you're not she's a strong protagonist in mm. the sense that you're rooting for her the whole way through there's never a time where you think she's unlikable you know um and she's compelling and she's, you know, you never want her to experience that horrible aspect. God, no. And I, and I understand the argument that because of those things, people could just say she's kind of bland and doesn't have much of a character. But I argue, I think the film in general is quite vague and open to interpretation. And, and the fact that I, I watch the film, and I'm like, she's quite smart. I would, I would, especially with the letter with the encoded address on there. I think there's a lot in there. I think there are, there are, and I, I'll give Young credit. There, there's such amazing detail, particularly in, I would say, up and, like, well, the whole way through, but the things that resonate with me the most are, you know, we, we see, before we get a title screen, which is, like, what, 15 minutes into the film, it's a long way into the film, we get yeah, the Hounds yeah. of Love burnt into the, the film screen. And mm. um, that's basically to show us the the methodology of the whites, how they lure a victim in, and and the mundanity of their morning routine that's intermixed with the horrible things they're doing to their yeah. victims. And obviously, we get a little bit of an introduction then to to Ashley's character. But what I find really interesting is after she chooses to sneak out of her mother's house and she's going to this party, is how elongated the scene, the 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 sort of seduction that the whites have, basically this, uh, real allurement. time. Yeah, it is. It's that that allurement of them into the household, but also how many steps she takes to actively avoid putting herself in a compromising position. She's mm-hmm. not... Um, and she looks, and she looks, you know, she has these disjointed conversations. She gets into a little bit of a rapport. She looks to see there's a baby seat in the back seat of the car. Mm-hmm. There's so many cool little cutaways that just help her and help us, the audience, justify 
why she lowers the barriers a little bit yeah. more, lowers it a little bit exactly. more. Exactly, yeah. And that's, we see it being chipped away slowly, and it's not like she just jumped into the car and jumped into the living room. You're seeing the chinks in her armour slowly being chipped out and cracking. You know, and I love Silent to the Lambs, but you could argue, oh, well, the way that Buffalo Bill lures his women in that film mm. is fictionalised. It's co- almost comical in, mm. in comparison. It's not realistic at all. He puts his hat down and then just grabs <laughs> a girl or he gets a girl to hold a couch and then yeah. picks, you know, throws her into a car and drives off in an innocuous way. And um, Whereas this is so, like you said, it's so meditated and planned out. And, and, and there's the self-awareness on the couple as well where, like, them coming off as just sort of weird but not maliciously weird, just like, oh, we like selling dope and we like kind of sexually dance in front of strangers in the living room and like, oh, you're free to leave now, it's fine. Like, just that perfect balance of like being weird and inviting but not to a malicious but honestly, the level. Weird, the weirdness doesn't come until that last possible bit. It, the rest of it's very they, earnest. They grab her, yeah. Um, because the way they get her all the way into that lounge room is so earnest, you know, he's taking a call from work, you know, mm. he's saying like very dad-esque sayings, you know, she's talking about how she has two kids, but they're not like, mm. and everything there is kind of like the fact that they separated for a bit and she's got kids, but he's okay with looking after them. The dog, the, the like-mindedness, there's so much there. They're so open. Yeah. And it's, it's so like, obviously you're watching it now, knowing what's going to happen and you're just trying to get her to go out. But it's one of those things where it doesn't feel like a a girl in a horror movie being led to the slaughter. It's mm. honestly just that could easily have been you. Like that's the feeling it has. It, it, the film goes so out of its way to to show you that that she wasn't a dummy, and that the people who captured her were very experienced, very great performers, and. And it's it's terrifying in that sense because it is trying to place you in that scenario of this easily could have happened to you if you were in this place at this time. Yeah. And and of course you let your guard down because you're 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 a teenager. And and again, she's that she's got that initial hesitation. But yeah, I, I think it's so clever how the film does that in real time. And then and what's especially creepy is at the end of that sequence, it's this really elongated single shot that slowly pans and pushes into the room as she's getting chained up and then obviously um Evelyn's giving John a a quick BJ <laughs> at the satisfaction the completion of their mission which and, is just so messed up you know in in bringing up that messed up point this does come back to the fact that this is you know the the, the concept of power and control and particularly the the cycle of abusive relationships this film is inundated with mm. um and, you know, you've just touched on one there between Evelyn and um, John. Mm. And obviously it's a part of almost a part of a chain of toxic relationships. And we, we sort of see that at the end of kind of the first act when John leaves the house for the first time to go to the tuck shop mm. um, and is basically just completely strong-armed by a bigger fish, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Completely bullied by... Uh, Bogan 1 and Bogan 2, basically. Um, But is completely and utterly emasculated. I think one of them is named Pete. Yeah, is completely (laughs) emasculated in that scene. Yes. 
And that's when we first get that first clue of, oh, this is the dyna- This is almost the dynamic of abuse here. Is, yep. is, this it's is trickling only- down constantly. Yeah, the only way he can feel sort of power and control is he has to prey on teenage girls. And Well, what I find interesting is you, you contrast that with the initial scenes of Evelyn and Vicky. When they're first... It's the first morning and it's just the two girls alone and she's sort of helping her clean up the bed and then basically putting her in for a bath and forcing her to use the ladder. There again, like there's something about her performance there that's so calm and and confident. And the fact that she he she lets her have enough room to try and break her chain free, but it but enough of a watchful eye to be like, I'm not stupid, like I know you're trying to do this. Um and just constantly having the knife at the ready. But that that her demeanor, her confident demeanor changes as soon as John comes back. And he's like, Oh, I'll I'll take over, I'll put her in the bathroom. And all of a sudden, she becomes so much more frail and scared in mm. the situation. And again, going back to the smartness of, of Vicky's character is that, yes, yeah, she tries to escape physically multiple times, but even just the way the logline describes it, that she realized she has to drive a wedge between them. There's the psychological game that she's aware of. And like, this is how I survive. Is It's the psychological long game here. Yeah. And uh, it, it works. She ends up She ends up stabbing John. She she literally does drive them against each other. Yeah, and it's is um it's very true, and I think it's quite interesting because you know yeah like you said you, it's about that driving the wedge aspect, but the way that the scenes are paced and and truly the power you know that power dynamic and and there are true moments where where Stephen Curry's character of of, of John is just absolutely mortifying and mm. not just in the creepy horrible sense where he's preying on these teenage girls in that disgusting and deplorable manner but in those scenes where he's talking to just Evelyn and yeah. and when you know um Vicky attempts to escape for the first time through the window but like feigning it in the bathtub and then scurrying through yeah, the house that's great. and it's so intense as well yeah because she's she's clearly smart enough. Damn you, Maisie! To, Australian yeah. houses with <laughs> no flow or logic. <laughs> but then the the that's a great moment with the dog. And I I knew that moment was going to happen. But the surprise of the dog being ready at the door is or the window, I should say, is always it always just works so well that yeah. cut. Um, but then you know it's like going back to that the chain of events for Evelyn to sort of finally turn against her husband. It, it, it's the it's him losing his shit on the dog and killing the dog. And then uh, basically the climactic scene is, is when her family are just outside the driveway. It's so intense when they're all so close. They can hear what they've done to each other. Mm. You know, John and, and Evelyn can literally hear the cries and woes of the mother of the daughter they kidnapped. And it's almost like, is that the final moment that pushes Evelyn over? Is that the final chink in her armor so to speak i i I would say so i think Mm. there's definitely something there there's i think that's what i I found the sort of following up evelyn's character in this viewing the thing that resonated most with me i I think she's such a got a multifaceted performance and, and curry's character is so overtly evil um that at first that's the thing that screams out at you this Mm. this disgusting horrible man that sort of can only strong arm his way and through manipulation and and 
honestly, well, traditional gender roles and enforcing that aspect of it, which, you know, in a in a 21st century world would just not cut it anymore. No. <laughs> um, and that's that. That's that also retrospective thing that I definitely think Young's trying to convey is, is just how dated that sort of value and, and toxicness just wouldn't cover it now. I mean, mm. no one would put up with that stuff. And even in the film, having Vicky's parents who are going through a separation, but it's because the mother wants to make it on her own, mm. you know, and having that sort of... She's kind of challenging the gender expectation of the time. Right. Because, you know, Vicky's father is quite well off. He's got money. You know, the first scene we see with Vicky is, oh, new puppy. And he's yeah. always very well that dressed. That house stands well out yeah, very much so compared to all the other houses it's we the top see. It's the top of the hill at Cardinia. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and, and, and yet, you know, they have a conversation where, you know, Vicky's parents have a conversation when she's gone missing where where she's gone and it's Vicky's mother that's going, oh, this doesn't sound like her. I know what she sounds like when she's yep. handwriting. And he's the one who's kind of out of touch. But what's really important is all he's like, oh, we just come back. Come back to conform to the role of sort of your expected right. role. Yeah. And she's actually the one to be very definitively against that. Yeah. She wants to make out for her. Which I think is an interesting aspect of this film that's not as overt as, as some of the other themes going sure, on. Sure, it feels important. like the B-plot, yeah. But it's important because I think we're really trying to strip away, you know, we're talking about, we don't want to give, you know, from a victim's point of view, it's giving light and putting light on, and I understand that that's, there's a definitely an argument for why do we talk about these serial killers after the fact, mm. but... Then there is the act, the other side of it, which is completely peeling back any sort of mystique and power they had over it. You know, yeah, yeah um, that's a good point. And it's important that you know we look at Curry's character um, in John, and we take back any shred of dignity that he has as a character. He's deplorable and disgusting, and um, is only preying on those that are younger than him or in a worse in a very vulnerable mental state and it only has power over them until he doesn't he gets yeah. that he gets it all robbed from him in the end and the best he can do is is take out all that aggression and anger of this little man complex out mm. on a defenseless dog yeah uh, and that ends up being the crutch for this like we said that breaking point in the in the and the wedge being fully slotted in between the two of them. Yeah. Um, Eventually he went too far. <laughs> and I think that that's important. I think that that's why I think, you know, like those performances from Cummings and, and Booth are, are really important because we're really looking at the women in this film yeah. are the most important aspect from every aspect. Well, of I, this think, film. I think, um, yeah, Steve, Stephen Curry's the third credit. Yeah, it's just a hammer in that idea. It's like, it's really about these two women. That's why I was so intrigued by the scene where they're finally alone together. Mm. Um, and the dynamic is so different from what is otherwise just him doing horrible things to her constantly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a... Yeah. But I what I love as well, and, and kind of to visually reinforce what we're saying about John's power dynamic, is it's contrasted with... You know, the first time we see him walking towards his victim, it's this out of shot, slow motion. Fo uh, it still, as he's hits walking, that shot. and then obviously contrast it later with him 
laying back, stabbed, we're pulling away, he's out of focus, all these powers, like you said, is essentially being robbed of him. Yeah. And it's sort of the perfect visual me- metaphor for what we were just talking that about. That shot there. is just phenomenal. Mm. It's just... It works so well. It yeah, still works payoff. so well. It's one of those shots that I remember seeing the first time and being like, oh, that was a good shot. Like, that's a real shot that resonates. And it's quite far apart. It's like in the first 10 minutes of the film and the last like five minutes of the film. Mm. They don't really jam it down your throat to try and remember. It's just so vivid and distinguishable that you do make that connection immediately. The two different shots and how they parallel the start and the end it's of the story. It's his lanky menacing. Because he's not... Uh, like, that's the thing. Physically, mm. he's not an overpowering thing. And there's that you know there's that shot halfway through where he's com- almost completely naked. And he's They're not, very he's... unflattering in their nudity in this film. Yes. Unlike the scopophilic shots of them watching young girls playing netball. But then we cut to them in bed and, and she's just like... She just has her boobs out and, yeah. and nothing very exciting about he gets these shots at all. Legs scratched and, and <laughs> uh, he then shuffling around the house and yep. yeah, it's it's not it's not attractive at all. It's completely de- you know, and I think it's quite interesting because that's the thing. It's that menacing aspect of those silhouette shots when he's resting against the door frame. Yeah. Oh shivers and ick so much ick you need a shower after this film. <laughs> i think all the characters in the film need a shower after after what they've gone through would you say that that's your highlight scene zeke yeah i'd say so yeah i think it's pretty hard to beat i was like i said i was a big fan of of sort of that scene um that first sort of allurement scene is is just so hard to beat but mm. it's done so well it's it's because it's paced yeah so yeah. well it it's takes very... the time to show all those steps i didn't even think about it like that like you put it with the the just the chinks of armor being slowly chipped away for every interaction in that scene and it just yeah, it does it gives that exceptional believability which is the one thing that a lot of films never really capture or they don't allow the time to capture or it's so abrupt or mm. out of nowhere that these characters are then thrust into this exceptional circumstance. So this film took the time to be like, this is how this happens. The process of it. And that, it's yeah. uncomfortable. Like, don't get me wrong, this film is an uncomfortable film. I wish a film that was shot in Perth was a far more palatable <laughs> film that I could be like, look future filmmakers this is a film that was made right here in perth but that you can show to someone other under the age of 21 <laughs> yeah but i don't think you could even yeah maybe, maybe a, we have to do it Zeke. it's a hard 18 this film for me yeah. i don't know how it's got an ma rating i think it should have got an r rating i guess i guess if you wanted to push it to the r you would have more i mean the nudity is all just kind of it's not like sexualized nudity no. But I think the subject matter alone is enough to... Yeah, that that's the thing, because it, it's, it's a very icky film that, like, technically speaking, doesn't get the R rating because of technicalities of where the camera is and how long you see stuff. Yeah. And what's the same with um, Asteroid City? It's like this full frontal female nudity in that film. It's got an M rating. And I, I guess because of the framing of the shot, how quick we cut away from it, that it's abiding to some rules where it, it doesn't get an MA. 
Yeah. It's interesting, that whole aspect. But that's the same it. with French Dispatch got an M. Not an MA. I always figured that, yeah, there's nudity in French Dispatch yeah. as well, of course. So it's... It's the but it's the artisanal aspect to it, I guess, mm. in those films where it's not really objective. It's different, I guess, but um, but it's all it's all subjective. You can't give like Wes who? Anderson and MA, <laughs> it just doesn't work. Uh, I wonder if that's yeah the people at the ACB so that it's like you just can't do it. Was it? You can't do it. <laughs> but this film is uh, oh, enticing and grotty. Exactly. It's, it's, I would um, probably say my highlight scene is what I mentioned, the intercutting between Vicky trying to force to take the pills at the end, the mother arriving on the other side of the street, that whole interaction, just like, it's so great. It's kind of like the, the ending of Argo, where yeah. there's no guns being fired, but there's like a similar level of anxiety, like, oh my God, so close, just that, that feeling edgy of seat you get. Um, and it all pays off because it's like, I think in the immediate watch is that her writing the letter doesn't really do anything but it, it creates that scene at the end where they actually do get to find each other in the street and hug and i think yeah i think it works for that reason there you go hounds so of love is currently streaming for free on sbs on demand yeah that's sick that's it's a perfect cool. film for sbs on demand yeah i've go got it on blu-ray so it's fine i watch that instead yeah go go check it out but forewarning it's a probably one of the heavier films you're ever going to watch Forewarning, we just spoiled the hell out of it if, if you haven't already seen it. Still gonna, <laughs> it's still worth a watch. But hey, yeah. look, speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas near us? The Little Mermaid, the live action version, comes to Disney Plus, Zeke. Yay! I forgot that was a thing. That's a thing. And we it's... got so caught up on the Snow White stuff. The... <laughs> Disney going to have to hire a few experts to solve that train. Oh my goodness. Uh, we've also got films coming to stand, such as My Salinger Year, Lulu Wayne's The Farewell, Rocket Man, and Marley and Me. Marley and Me, one of the only films I ever cried watching. On a plane, no mm. less. I was going to make a bad joke. Oh, no. <laughs> it's going to be like speaking of dead dogs. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will make a connection for you. Coming to Binge is The Goldfinch, which also stars Ashley Cummings. Nice. So there you go. Much You're nicer su- than mine. <laughs> as well as films like Two Leslie, which I recommend, is quite good. Uh, directed by Michael Morris, of course. And uh, Damien Chazelle's Babylon comes to binge this week. I need to give Babylon another go because I remember it so much more fondly than the three star review I gave it six months ago. Wow. I really do need to rewatch it. Um, I know there's no plot for the first two hours. I get that. <laughs> it's just a mess. But. but no, I just, I look back and I'm like, I feel like I need to watch it again and give it a much, well, we'll see, we'll see. Maybe I'll watch yes. it again and be like, oh, that's why, blah, 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 blah. We did a podcast on it. Everyone can listen to that. Go check it out. And coming to cinemas this week, we have My Big Fat Greek Wedding, the third one. Yeah. Have you have you watched these films? Are you into I watched it? the first one. What did you think? In a previous girlfriend life. Oh, um, I see. But no, I did, I did <laughs> like it. Yeah. They, it the family reunite in Greece in this one. I've never seen the second one. I thought it was okay. fine. Yep. It's fine. You know, it's. I feel like if you date a Greek, you have to watch My Big Fat Greek. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, I can pass for Greek, but I, I certainly won't force you to watch um, any Portuguese films. Except City of God, actually. No, you should watch City of God. Oh, okay. So you are forcing me to watch I am. Something. I take that back. I'm going to do it. Uh, also, coming to cinemas, we have The Nun 2. Or the nun I I the Roman numerals. Ooh, I genuinely spooky. thought there was already a nun too. 
Yeah, it it must be part of like a wider series of other like the Amadel the doll what uh, what what what's the Annabelle 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 doll Jesus Christ uh, the nun two takes place in 1956 France where uh, with a, a priest murdered and an evil spreading sister Irene once again comes face to face with the demonic force and finally this is an interesting one theater camp sees an eccentric group of staff members of an upstate New York theater camp band together when their beloved founder falls into a coma. Mm. I guess this band worked together. I must have just not wrote that correctly. Um, but that looks really fun, really quirky. I don't think it's A24, but it, it gave me that vibe. Kind of the fun A24 vibe, if that if that's I a see. thing. But yeah, so that's coming to, I think, Luna and Events, I think. Or is it not coming to Luna? I don't know. Do, do research yourself, guys. I, I read all that. <laughs> You figure out where they're playing. My gosh, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, come on, get off, get off, Jake's. Uh... Get off my ass. Yeah, that. If there was any way to comment on this podcast, which I don't think there is, God forbid. You can on Spotify actually now. I'm pretty sure you can. What comment? Yeah, it was like a Q and A thing. You can like write something. Oh. I should check if anyone. I don't know if there's it's like a manual thing. I got to check. I don't know. Just don't don't bother, guys. We're not going to respond. <laughs> it's a one-way show. You listen, we talk. So is that just it? the way I that, like it. That's that, it. That's everything coming to streaming in cinemas this Excellent. Week. Well, hey, Jake. We're not watching any of those next week, I'm Hey, show. Zeke. Hi, Jake. <laughs> but what are we watching? <laughs> uh, next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching a little old film called After Sun. I love you. Love you. Why don't you go over and introduce yourself? Dad, no, they're like kids. Why don't you go over and introduce yourself? Mm. Sophie, they're like old. Don't you ever move back to Scotland? No. Why? There's this feeling, once you leave where you're from, that you don't totally belong there again. You okay through there? Don't you ever feel like tired and down and feels like your bones don't work, like you're sinking? Mm. We're here to have a good time, eh? You know, I want you to know that you can talk to me about anything as you get older, you know? Done it all and you can too. We could escape for longer. Me too. Sophie reflects on the shared joy and private melancholy of a holiday she took with her father 20 years earlier. Now, I, I don't like they tell you that. But also, the film makes a lot more sense if you know that going in. That this is like we're looking back 20 years in the past. I see. But it's fine. 
every logline had it. So I was like, all right, I guess it's not a spoiler. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I've never seen this film. You have seen this mm, film. Indeed. So I look forward to cross-examining it. Yeah, it's it was it was. I told you earlier, it's a lot more abstract than I realized going into it. And I remember having a conversation with friend of the show, Tegan Weir, not related to Peter Weir, unfortunately. Unlucky. I know, but um, I remember. Yeah, we had a really interesting conversation about it, just because it is, it's. Well, well, I guess we'll just get into it next week, Zeke. But I'm, I'm very excited for this conversation. Very spicy. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with After Sun. <laughs>